as long as I know I'm doing the right thing, I am doing my best. I'm doing something for the good of others. And I build things for impact, not for myself. Then I have that deep seated sense that I'm doing the right thing. And I can withstand the ebbs and flows or criticism or other things like that, which has been helpful (laughs) for sure in entrepreneurship. A bad bitch takes charge of her body, her boundaries, and her bank account. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by FTX US, the most complete crypto and finance app to buy and sell crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. You can trade NFTs with no fees, track your entire portfolio, and use a crypto-friendly debit card at millions of retailers. Plus, they're even launching stocks. Download the FTX US app by going to the link in the description and using the code BADBITCHES to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, link in the description. Use code BADBITCHES to sign up so we can start investing and break the crypto boys club. Welcome back to the Bad Bitch Empire. Today, I'm here with Alex Kavalakis. She's the CEO and co-founder of Meta Angels, an NFT membership community harnessing the metaverse to unlock real life opportunities. Founded on the values of generosity, transparency, and accessibility, Meta Angels has pioneered the first of its kind NFT lending technology on the blockchain. Alex is also the co-founder of Angel Labs, a premier Web3 accelerator, And prior to Web3, Alex co-founded The Muse, a platform used by over 75 million people to research and find their dream careers, where she led operations and product for a decade. The Muse was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative companies in the world, and she's been named Forbes 30 Under 30 in media, Inc. 15 Women to Watch in tech, and much more. And she is currently in New York with her two daughters and husband. Alex, welcome to the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for all of you listening, if you don't really know what Web3 is yet, don't worry. And a lot of things like blockchain, NFT, we're going to break all of that down. But before we get into that, Alex, I want to hear about your transition from throughout your career, from uh, management consulting to entrepreneurship to crypto and Web3 and more entrepreneurship. So just take us back a bit and tell us about where this drive really came from early on in your life. Yeah, it's funny. I think I... I've always been someone who started things and built things, but I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, as you know, a teenager or a child. I think some of that is cultural. I grew up in France. And so, you know, it's a relatively sort of clear path as to what success looks like there academically. And I think some of that is gendered as well. I think when you see little boys who start, you know, their lemonade stands, you're like, it's a future entrepreneur. I just happened to start things and I didn't see the pattern actually until I looked back. I started acapella groups, I started nonprofits, I ran organizations and I loved building. I think that's been the key ever since I was a a kid. I loved building things and making things happen out of nothing. But I grew up in France, as I mentioned, and there the one thing that was really valued was science. So, you know, that's what you study and you pick early on in high school. So I thought I was going to be a molecular biologist of all things, actually. And I was lucky enough to come here to the U.S. for college, have a liberal arts education, do my genetics research freshman year and realize I hate working in a lab, which is sort of what I'd be stuck with if I had stayed in France. Um, And so I pivoted from there for the first time, thought I wanted to work in, uh, you know, international relations, uh, got a chance to do amazing work at the EU and the State Department while in college. I interned at the U.S. Embassy in Paris, dream job. Loved working there, except that I hate bureaucracy and I like the things things that move fast. And so yet again, I changed, looked at what was ahead, um, and that's how I ended up in management consulting. That was my first job out of college. I worked at McKinsey & Company for three years to the day, um, September 26th, my friend's birthday, <laughs> and learned a ton. Um, and I thought that I'd figured out what I was going to do. I was good at it. I had built good client relationships. I had found my people within the firm. And... Yet there was this itch to build something that came from identifying a problem. My co-founder of The Muse, Catherine, and I had very early on realized consulting was a fit for me. McKinsey was not a fit for her. And it wasn't anything wrong with one of us or right with one of us. It was just a question of fit. 
And that sort of itch that there was an unmet need, I think was the first of many times in my career that I felt like I needed to do something about it. No one else was doing something about it. And so I ended up leaving and starting the Muse. So that was the beginning of entrepreneurship for me. So I want to dig into this unmet need and this itch, because I think that there's a lot of people in their career, especially early on when they don't know exactly what they want to do, but they're not exactly satisfied with where they are, but they don't, they don't do anything about it. Right. So what, tell me about that feeling that you had. And it was like, this is a necessity that I do something different. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's two things. One is just innately, you know, some people are procrastinators. I'm a procrastinator. I just like have to act. I find it very difficult not to act if I feel like something needs to happen. So I think that was one piece of it. But the other one was that when I looked around, you know, I saw this consulting room, you know, I'd been promoted many times. I saw the path ahead of me, what it looked like. I could stay if I did well, I could make partner. I'd been partner quite young. I'd skip business school. I could see what that path looked like. It was, you know, attractive in many ways. And yet when I talked to my co-founder, Catherine, a big thing that I knew was that there was this gap in the career space and the job search space to help people find values-based jobs, to help them figure out what something a company was like before they applied, which that was so critical. And um, the more we talked about it, the more I knew it needed to happen. She had already left McKinsey, was thinking about starting it. And so I actually took a step back, said, look, if she starts this without me, one of two things can happen. One, it fails. And I will always wonder if I could have changed the outcome because she and I are really complementary in terms of skills. Or it does really well. And then I kick myself in the shins and wonder why I didn't join. So really, I felt like I had no choice. I had to do it. Like I had to jump forward. And just by breaking it down, I think it switched it from this big, scary thing to, well, what else am I going to do? I guess I have to start it. Tell me about the complementary skills. How did you do that evaluation as you were thinking about jumping into your first startup with a business partner? Yeah. I mean, we were friends first. And I always tell people, it's just like roommates. Some friends make good roommates. Some roommates make good friends, but not always both. Catherine and I were good friends and we had a chance to work together on a few projects and realize that we'd be good business partners as well. And although we had many things in common in terms of strategic thinking and vision, sort of definitely alignment on where we wanted to go. Catherine is a sales and marketing machine. She's a relationship person. She likes to build partnerships. She enjoys pitching investors and going out and you know, evangelizing for what we were, we were doing. I love to build. I can be in front of the camera, but I don't mind being behind the scenes. And I love to build the product, build the operations, to be in the details, and then tie that to the vision. I think the high-low for me is really, you know, the details and the vision, the strategy and the execution. That combination is always something I love having both. And so tagging up was amazing. You know, teaming up was amazing because we could tag team and say, okay, I'm going to take this. You'll take this. 24 hours later, we'd both made progress and it just allowed for that speed of execution um, to be able to really trust someone who was better at the things they owned than you. And you knew they trusted you, that you were better at the things that you owned than them. That's so important when you're in a partnership. Amazing. So then you took the leap from a a, a corporate you know, management consulting gig. And then you said, okay, I'm going to dive in and do this head first. What was that like starting up the company? Yeah. I mean, it was amazing in some ways because we knew we were onto something. We grew very quickly in terms of initial users. Feedback from the market was really, really strong. At the same time, we had no money and we had no connections in tech. At, you know, we were at the time we were in our mid twenties and we were just starting from scratch, figuring it out. And being in a space, and this is so different than Web3 right now, but being in a space like job search, which is not sexy, it never is and never will be for, for anyone in, a, in the venture capital or investment world. And it's also not a problem for them. To go and pitch a solution to a problem the investors don't have is always harder. And so I think that was really, especially early on, it was a challenge pitching a lot of you know angel investors who didn't see it or who weren't ready to sort of figure it out. Um, Catherine found 150 angel investors. We had no network, right? We networked her way into 150 angel investor pitches and basically 148 said no. And no could have been just ghosting us or saying no, but essentially, you know, we had to say yes. And ultimately what turned the tide for us is we got into Y Combinator. They saw our numbers, they saw our traction, they saw we were building something users wanted. Um, but the early days were tough because it, you know, we didn't have, we were so scrappy, but we didn't have the money to hire and build the things we wanted to build. Um, that I think was frustrating because we just always wanted to move faster. So you talked about you had this early traction mm-hmm. and you had users 
Do you think that there is a difference in terms of what you saw of women having female founders, you know, having traction? And I mean, we know the numbers in terms of women getting only 2% of all venture funding and women of color less than 0.2%. Did you feel that, especially early on in terms of just how people looked at you different as two female founders? I mean, absolutely. I think the the research actually that has stuck the most with me, in addition to the numbers you just shared, um, is research around promotion of women versus men. Um, came out of HBS, I believe, and then talked about how, and this is not in, in um, venture capital or investment, but I think the pattern is very real, is that often in corporate settings, men are promoted based on their promise, on their potential, on what they could be. And women are promoted based on their track record. It's a lot harder. And so I think the same thing happens in investments where we would go and say, we are going to go and do this and give a big vision and show big numbers. And essentially we would always get great, come back to us when you've done that. And a lot of the male founders we knew were getting funded on that same vision or idea before they did it. With just a pitch deck and idea. With, yeah. And, and we would come back and show the numbers and have exceeded them. And they'd be like, huh, now we'll take you seriously. But that delay of time to actually have to go and execute and prove yourself. With bootstrapping, no money. It's like how yeah. And so you're always, yeah. And so you're always kind of behind the eight ball from that perspective. And the most interesting thing about Y Combinator, actually, it's been an amazing network to be a part of, but was actually there were 65 companies in our batch. And it meant that we were all fundraising at the same time, all building at the same time, all looking at each other's numbers and talking pretty candidly, especially the closer groups of, of folks. And there were 135 founders in our batch. Eight of them were women. Three of them were us. And every other woman there had at least one male co-founder. We had the only all-female team, the first all-female team founded by Y Combinator back in 2012. And so what was so interesting is we'd go to our friends, a lot of them were all-male teams, and say, we keep getting this question. What would you say to it? And none of them were asked those same questions that were really <clears throat> those prove-yourself track record questions that were only being asked of female teams. So I think that was really interesting because without the network, we wouldn't have realized what those questions really were, that they weren't standard questions everyone asked, but they were someone who's already kind of showing their bias. And, um, and so it allowed us in some cases to go around it, in other cases to realize we're never going to convince this investor. They are already in that mindset that we are a cute little side project and we're not looking to build a big business and we're not going to be able to convince them otherwise. So given some of those questions, right, where you started learning, they would say, okay, but what have you done? You know, how... We call, I think I read it, it's like called preventative questions versus promotional questions. Exactly. Right? So it's like someone might be asked, well, who do you plan to hire? And then they might ask the woman, well, how do you think you're going to hire this person when you have a competitor that has more money? And, um, and then you have to defend yourself. So what were some of the answers that you prepared for those common questions, you know, where they were asking about track record or they were asking the preventative things? I mean, there were so many of them, but I mean, those weren't even the worst of them. I mean, we got questions because we initially targeted um, women uh, professionals very quickly, broadened to, to both men and women or all genders because that's who our consumer was. But we started out helping female professionals. And the questions we got were things like, what are you going to do when your consumers turn 30? And, you know, and my favorite thing would be to pause and say, no, tell me, what, what do you mean? Right. They literally were like, or they'd say, you know, okay, fine. Maybe people on the coast, women on the coast are interested in their careers, but I don't think there's that many people. It, that's the level of disconnect we were talking about uh, over a decade ago. And so if that's where we were starting. That was a challenge. In terms of preventative questions, I think the thing about it is we kind of had to come in and preempt them as much as possible. And it meant being overprepared. It meant being incredibly confident. It meant dressing in a way that felt strong, but not too aggressive, not too feminine, not too nice, right? Like there's way more overthinking how you present as a, as a woman in, in a pit, you know, when you're pitching than I think, you know, almost anything else I can think of because you get that first impression. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was really fascinating to see the kinds of questions we had to keep all, you know, always know our numbers cold, always know the plan um, and, and pitch, you know, a future vision, and keep reminding people and bringing them back to that vision and buying into it. I mean, the best advice I, I give people and I've ever received around pitching investors is that you're not going to change their worldview. You have to figure out what worldview they hold that you're that you fit into, right? That your company solves a problem for. But if they don't believe that's a problem, you're never going to convince them of a new thing. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> so that's a lot of what we did was making sure what are the trends? What are the directions? What are the things that are happening? And how can we make ourselves seem so inevitable 
that the question is just, is this the right team? Not, is this even a problem? And that's actually where I think a lot of people get stuck. And what were some of the experiences that you had? Because I think that was pre-Me Too <laughs> as well. Because if you are a female entrepreneur, everyone intimately knows you know, what it's like just going through the bullshit that we have to deal with when over 90% of the investors that you're pitching are men. Yeah, I mean, realistically, there's a lot of challenges. We talked about the sort of you know, unbiased when you're actually pitching a, a team of people. There's also, you know, my co-founder Catherine did the majority of the the pitching for us, especially in the early days, at least the first round. There's the meetings that are actually first dates, right? That are not, you know, actually at all interested in in you know being pitched the company, and that closes off an avenue of of investment that that men had access to. Um, there's, you know, we had early-ish into the company's history, we had a, a round that was committed and that was, you know, slow to close, but completely committed by someone who had already put money in the cap table. Um, and as, you know, my done deal, co-founder flies out to, to sign the paperwork and the person running the organization makes advances at her. Literally, as we are closing fundraising, this person's supposed to join the board. Um, and I remember so well, she called me and was like, complete shock. Here's what just happened. And we decided to pull out of the deal. And it was really, you know, we did not have the cash to withstand it. We ended up raising a million dollars in maybe six weeks, something like that. I mean, scraping pennies, finding who in the world can we go back to, to make this happen so we don't have to take this money. But there's a lot of female founders out there who had to make the decision, do I take money under those situations? Or do I risk losing the business? Yeah. Right. And like that was the position. We had planned A, B, C, D. One of them was Catherine, you know, subletting her apartment, moving in with me. We could Airbnb to help pay rent and to help pay payroll. I mean, it was really gnarly. Um, so there's the full range of it for sure. Um, thankfully, she got an opportunity to sort of be part of a story about this person who then lost their job. But was only because he'd been doing it as a pattern of, of abuse of power, yeah. right? And so I think that's the thing is a lot of people with, with the money and the power take advantage of that. And young female founders with nowhere to turn, even now with Me Too, you know, they don't, they don't try that on Series C, you know, co cover of Forbes people. They try it on, on people who are in their first or second rounds, have nothing, nowhere to turn and who need the, need the money. And it's, it's kind of... It's a sad fact and it's really disgusting. It's also down to the wire. So they knew that was oh, the yeah. moment where she was and both of you were most vulnerable. Yeah, and we turned down all the other investors. Now everything, you know, we'd we close the door to all our other options. And despite that, we made the decision to to, you know, to walk away. But it was a difficult decision. We could have lost the company then, could have, you know, had to fire everyone who'd ever ever joined and been a part of it. And there's, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a calculated move. It's not accidental. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of sort of challenges there and glad to see that there's more movement towards making that more equitable, but it's, it's one of the many challenges. It's not the only reason. It's a very small part, actually, I think of the reason there's so few, few women getting money in the space, but it's, you know, another layer on top of it. Do you think there were any red flags prior to that, that looking back, you guys could have noticed? I mean, not really in the sense that this is someone who had already put money in, who'd been, you know, supporting financially the company for many years as an angel. It, it was an, it was an angel. It was an angel that was coming in to lead as part of a, a fund. I mean, there was no, like the, the relationship was very clearly professional until it wasn't as it always is. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's an abuse of power. Um, and it's, and it's something that, you know, when I think about people entering the space, especially for all female teams, like you are in a position where you have to be extra careful and it sucks, you know, and it's, it's true in, in corporate as well, right? It's not just a, an entrepreneurship question. I remember at, um, when we were in consulting, you'd have, you know, guys our age who would go with the senior partners out for drinks after they finished with the client, one-on-one -on -one and get mentorship and build relationships. And like, you're not going to do that at 22 with your 45-year-old married boss. Or maybe you will if it's a group, but your thought, you know, you worry about it, right? And like, it's those layers, I think, of the fact that the the power dynamic is there, the gender dynamic is there, um, and the expectation feels muddy enough, you know, in, in a lot of corporate settings as well, that it, it can then put women at a disadvantage from a career progression perspective. Forget the rest. Yeah. So, I mean, there's... 
obviously a ton of challenges for female entrepreneurs fundraising, but hopefully that's changed a bit. And I think especially when we talk about Web3, when we get mm-hmm. into the, the power of NFTs and um, just blockchain to even create new avenues of funding, especially if you are, a, um, I would say, an underrepresented founder who has yep. yeah, traditional venture capital funding has been hard to come by. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about the, the scaling of the Muse. So you got your money in and now you're going from zero to over 100 employees. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a very fast period of growth. We grew 45%, the revenue, 45% quarter over quarter for like seven or eight quarters straight. I mean, we we're growing like gangbusters from a client perspective, hiring new people. And I think it's... Um, it's just like a wild ride to be a part of that. I mean, I, I miss that time in some ways and I look back, I'm like, I can't believe we went through that. The things I think we really focused on in some cases did really well was focusing around culture and hiring and who we brought in and how we kept true to our values. We articulated those very early, interviewed for them. I won't, we actually don't, the news doesn't do share them publicly, so I won't draw out them here. Their internal values, yeah. And part of the reason we actually didn't share them publicly is we found that a lot of times people then try and like game the interview in the system to try and be like, here's what I'm showing up instead of us looking for it. You can, you can piece it together if you really look. The one, one of them that's famously out there is no assholes. Um, but there's, yeah, there's six values at the Muse. Um, and we would look for them and hire for them and fire for them, right? Like there's people, I think that the true measure of values for a company is whether you make hard decisions. It's very easy to make the easy decisions based on your values. But if you have a role been trying to fill so desperately and you finally find a person who's qualified and then you find out that they'd be a terrible person to work with and they're kind of an asshole. Like, do you still make the hire, right? Like it's those moments, those decisions that you either lean towards your values and keep that culture or you don't. So I think that was, you know, definitely one of those things that gets tested in scaling. And I think we did a good job during our, our busiest years. The thing that was is hard is sort of scaling the the systems along with it, you know, and thinking about how do you, the things that work for you work until they don't. I think it's one of the things that's just amazing to see. And so the, the importance of setting up data early on to be able to look, track your metrics, see how you're doing, keep an eye on conversion rates. You know, I think it's one of the things that can really um, challenge startups if they don't have that early and making sure that's set up well. And then you know, projections in an uncertain in an uncertain world and, and pressure from the outside world and the board. Like, how do you set the right aspirational but realistic targets to be able to grow without breaking, right? And so it's it's just like a a, a you know piece of willow, right? Like of like wood. You want to bend it, you don't want it to snap. And so I think that's what a lot of startups who scale have have the struggles. If you snap, you got to start all over. Um, there's a lot of challenges there, but if you you can still push until you bend. And, and that's going to be a lot of the, the growth years. How do you think you've grown as a woman and a leader since your beginning of your entrepreneurship journey? It's a good question. I mean, I've managed so many different positions, roles, seniorities, types of folks. Um, I think one of the things for me, I, I overinvest in my people, which generally is a good thing. But I've had to sort of learn that line. Um, and I did earlier in my career now have mentored a lot of people to do the same is if there's people you believe in and they're not quite performing, they're not tanking. So it's not a clear black and white, right? But they're not quite performing. If you were an extremely competent and also very empathetic manager, you often end up doing what I call scaffolding. And you're like helping them and you're like, you know, breaking things down for them and you're using your time to help them be successful. And all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you're in a position that if you remove that scaffolding, the building falls down. Like it's actually not strong enough like underneath. Without the, and, and, or, and, or sometimes even the work, like I've seen people, you know, spend three times as much time editing one writer's work than another, you know, or let me give you the spreadsheet, you know, for I did last time and let me walk you through it and check your work. And so I think it's one of the things I definitely learned was that balance between I want to give clear direction, I want to give feedback, um, but doing the work for someone always ends up to bite you in the butt. You know, it really does. Any other areas where you felt like even from early on in your life or patterns of good girl brainwashing, (laughs) you know, being polite, pleasing, perfect, or, um, you know, not enforcing the boundaries that you needed that you think you had to let go of in order to become a bad bitch in business? 
It's a good question. It's funny. I'm I'm the oldest child um, in my family. There's two girls and then a boy. Um, and I'm the oldest of the generation, right? So first grandchild on both sides. And uh, my father is Greek. And despite all of the stereotypes about Greeks, he always treated me like I was a boy. I actually think there's a lot. I, I definitely got a lot of, you know, being polite and being a good girl. Absolutely. But there's a lot I got from him that made it easier for me in business. Um, I actually, when we were at McKinsey, I used to help Catherine rewrite her emails to be less nice. It's like, nope, remove that apology, remove that smiley face. Like, you know, the difference between thank you for your patience and I'm sorry for my delay, even small things like that, you know, being really conscious with your words. Um, I certainly, I mean, my husband jokes, if anyone comes anywhere near me and it's their fault, they're bumping into me, I will say a sorry without, you know, just reflexively. But that that's different, right? Like, I think there's an element of owning who you are that I, I've had from a young age that has really helped. And I actually, <laughs> reputationally at McKinsey, I was known for dealing with difficult people that I could handle them. I mean, I must have been 22 or something. I had, I would dress older, I'd try to make myself look older, clients that were more than twice my age who were really challenging people. And I, in a way, I almost thrived and enjoyed the fact that I could be the adult in the room, right? I remember having a 50-year-old client at a financial services firm freak out about something, throw a phone against the room. It was not about us. It's about someone else in their organization. We we're supposed to go over something and they're having this tantrum basically. And I'm 22 and I'm like, I pause and I ask, would you like us to go over the deck or reschedule the meeting? Like in the calmest voice possible. And I don't know where it came from, but I think that anchoring for me has always been there. The thing that... Um, I think I've had to sort of learn and overcome, and I'm still working on, is, is advocating for myself. Part of it is what motivates me is not prestige or money. And as a result, I will not fight for myself as much as I should in those areas. And it's something I definitely have had to learn. Um, I am, especially when I was consulting, much more likely to undercharge, do someone a favor than to value my own worth and my own time. As long as I have enough, I kind of don't think that way, but it hurts others, right? It it undercuts sort of the, the market as a whole, what the expectations are, what you can get. And so that's something I've had to really stop myself or at least be very clear when I'm doing that and say, this is my pro bono rate or this is my you know nonprofit rate or my friends and family rate. This is not what my hourly rate is because otherwise, you know, I, I would not get paid what I was worth. I think that's the area I've really had to learn. Um, but the sort of, I think the thing that, most women I know have really had to get to that I'm really fortunate to have gotten from my father is a deep sense that I know who I am. I just don't care what people think. I don't, as long as I know I'm doing the right thing, I am doing my best. I'm doing something for the good of others. And I build things for impact, not for myself. Then I have that deep seated sense that I'm doing the right thing. And I can withstand the ebbs and flows or criticism or other things like that which has been helpful <laughs> for sure in entrepreneurship. Well, one of the things I think you touched upon about knowing your worth and advocating for your worth, I think is really important to emphasize is, you know, you said that here are the things that internally drove you, here are the things that weren't, but that you realize that if you didn't, it wasn't just going to affect you, it was going to affect other women and the market and the standard. And that's why it actually drove you. Cause that was also impact. Right? It is, it is. I, I know I charge more for others, not for myself. Does that sound weird? <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I think there's really an element of, you know, realizing the, the part you play in the bigger ecosystem and you do, you can do a lot through mentorship and helping others, but also the choices you make, how you act and how you sort of position yourself. Um, it's the same thing with salary transparency and talking to others about what you make and, and how you pay, but the same thing happened. I mean, we, Catherine and I didn't advocate for our own salaries within the Muse. You know, we were like, we are working really hard. We're, we've got equity in the company. And then every time we talk to male founders, we're like, right, they make more than twice we do <laughs> because we haven't asked for more money. Right. And we had to go and do that after we raised our series A so that we could, you know, pay for an apartment in New York and not be, you know, struggling entrepreneurs when the company actually had enough to pay us. So there is an element of not waiting for someone else. And I think this is definitely a good girl mentality, certainly a, you know, straight A, work hard at school girl kind of mentality is that you'll get rewarded for the hard work. And that's not how it works. Um, it's not how it works in corporate cultures. It's not always the, the hardest working person who gets the promotion. It's not how it works when you, you know, pitch people. It's not always the companies that are actually performing best that get funded. <laughs> um, so it's also, you know, thinking about all of those pieces is, you know, really how it works is people's perception of you and the brand you build. And I think I've, you know, really looked to 
to build a personal brand that is I'm someone who is incredibly competent, who builds really great products and who really loves giving back and, and building a bigger ecosystem, a better ecosystem for everyone and a more inclusive one. And then that has opened doors for me to sort of lean into who I really am versus trying to be, you know, someone else or someone I'm not. Yeah. And so, I mean, now you talk openly about your values at <laughs> Meta Angels. Yeah. <laughs> and what are those values again? Yeah. So at Meta Angels, we are founded on the values of generosity, transparency, and accessibility. Um, all three of those are sort of baked into how we think about our product, about our community. And it's really, um, you know, looking at Web3, which we'll, I know we'll talk about in a while, but it's a new frontier. Every time there's a new frontier, every time there's technological innovation, there's essentially a new power structure that comes about. You know, people talk about decentralization in this sort of utopian way, but Web3 is not going to be any different than Web2 in the sense that someone's going to be in charge and someone's going to make a lot of money. And right now it's a lot of white men. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Uh, yeah. Um, but the amazing thing about the decentralization and the way that it works is that there's not the same gatekeeping around who can build. Yeah. Right. We had to wait for venture capitalists to tell us, here's some money. We think you're worthy. Um, That's the... So this this is the transition now. So we've gone from Web 2, which was the muse was built in Web mm -hmm. 2, Internet age. And um, you had the research, the data, you know, people being able to find their dream careers, raising venture capital, scaling, going through all the bullshit that we just talked mm -hmm. about. Um, and then you stepped down and you decided after a decade that you were no longer going to be at Muse because you you had this idea for MetaAngels. So I left the Muse before Web3 or MetaAngels actually. Yeah. So it, I, it had been a decade and I love building so much. I'm a builder. I'm a launcher. I'm a fixer, not a tweaker. I'm not as good at it. It's not energizing for me. And we finally got at a stage with the Muse where we had really figured a lot out. We had, you know, amazing clients, great product market fit. And we were at a place where you know, we're making our gross margins better and we're continuing to grow, you know, our, our conversion rates in certain areas and we're growing our revenue, of course, but it wasn't the same way that I could contribute or I felt like, you know, there was, it was time for the next sort of generation to take on. And I also, I love to learn and learn by doing. And I knew the inside of the muse, like the back of my hand, I'd run or been part of almost every department. Um, and, you know, I was, I missed the early stage. I did. And I think if I didn't love the muse so much, I don't think I would have stayed a decade, but I really do and did. And I stayed on, I'm still on the board and um, involved in the company in that way. But coming out of the pandemic, having seen us through it, which was challenging at first, and then we came out of it you know, in a much stronger position in many ways, it felt like it was the right time to sort of hand that off. I made sure we had someone internally set up for it. Um, culturally, it would not impact the company as much as it you know, might have before the pandemic. So we weren't you know day to day in person. And so I felt like it was the right time uh, on both sides. And so I left with nothing in mind, almost certain I was not going to start anything else. I was like, I don't have an idea. I don't have something that's gripping me. I'm not going to just start something to start something. What were you thinking of doing? Um, well, the first was like, I will tell I was like, I promised my family. I was like, I will take a break. I know. That was my promise, a break. Like I wanted to take a sabbatical, but I had, you know, one year old and a three and a half year old at the time, almost. And so I was like, can't really travel in the middle of a pandemic with two small kids. But I was like, I, I'll take a break. I'll take the summer off. I immediately took on a consulting client with a friend, not full time, but of course I immediately jumped into something. But having a little bit of work actually allowed me to take more of a break because I knew that I was sort of, I, I need to be productive in some way. And then I consulted through the fall and took on different clients. I did some speaking. I joined the board of a nonprofit, Hello Neighbor, that I really believe in. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll do this for a little while. You know, consulting is going great. All these people I've always wanted to work with, I get a chance to work with and, you know, little bits and pieces and contribute. Kept an eye out. Maybe I'll join something full time, but nothing was landing. And then I got, we can, I don't know if you want to go into it now, but I got pulled into Web3. I got pulled into minting my first project. And within a month, I was basically, that was it. <laughs> so, okay. Tell us, let's just very high level, <laughs> what exactly is Web3 and you know, now that you're pulled into it, how do you explain it to people who are still confused about the whole crypto, NFT, and all the hype around it? Yes. So a couple of things. Web3 overall is just a term that covers all the blockchain related things, just like in general. Why is it called Web3? So you've got Web 1.0, which was sort of back in the day, AOL, the readable web. So you could go online and find information and read it. And that was huge. 
Then there was web 2.0. That was the writable web. So you go on Facebook, you, you can create post things. It's the user-generated content. All of that content's actually owned by Facebook or Twitter or wherever you post it, but it allowed people to create as part of being on the internet. Web 3.0 is the ownable web. So the idea that you can actually own and track ownership through the blockchain, um, but just they narrow shorten it down to web three, and that sort of covers the entire the entirety of that ecosystem. The reality is most Web3 companies or Web3 projects are also very heavily in you know, Web2 and other technologies. They still have a Squarespace website or they still have Gmail, right? They're not living 100% in this future world, but it's a new layer of tech, right? It's a new layer of, of innovation that's really going to open up a lot of opportunity. In terms of some of the main concepts, I'll give the quick rundown if it's helpful for your listeners. Okay. So the blockchain is basically just a ledger of transactions. It's, you know gives you what happened, who, you know, this data, what was the transaction? Think of it like a a book in a store that tells you so-and-so bought a pint of milk for a dollar and so-and-so owes me another 25 cents for candy, right? And they would keep that in a general store way back when. And then it turned to Excels and databases and AWS. This is the next step in that. The difference with the blockchain and the reason they talk about crypto and things is it, it, there is a cryptography piece of it in terms of it being encoded. Um, it also, it's called the blockchain because each sort of page of a book, if you think of it in terms of the direct analogy, is a block. You get the data. When, it, when the block is full, you go to the next block and it's a chain of blocks. That's why it's called the blockchain. But what's amazing about it is that it's decentralized, meaning it doesn't just live on one server. It's not owned by Amazon. Anyone can access it or see it. Um, and it's very hard to change. And the fact that it's always there, always visible, and very pretty much impossible to change is actually incredibly innovative. <laughs> it doesn't seem that way, but it is. And then based on that, you get things like cryptocurrencies. So when you think about Bitcoin or Ethereum, those are cryptocurrencies. They're just digital or virtual currencies. The way that you have the euro or you have the pound, those are fiat currencies or government-issued currencies. And... The analogy, anyone who's heard me talk about this before will have heard this, my favorite analogy. If I go to Paris where I grew up and I want to buy a croissant, I can't use dollars. I have to take my dollars and switch them to euros. And once I have euros, I can buy my croissant. If I want to buy an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain, can't use dollars. I've got to get ETH or Ether or Ethereum, which is the currency of the Ethereum blockchain. But if I want to buy an NFT on Solana, I need Sol. I need the right currency for the right country, for the right chain. It's the same idea. And so that's really all it is. It's just another type of currency that has a different context. And just like the euro and the dollar have an exchange rate, all of these cryptocurrencies have exchange rates um, that are way more volatile than government-issued ones. But that's sort of the foundation. That's all you really need to know about either one of them. Um, and some people will get cryptocurrency as an investment, just like you might put you know, your dollars into pounds because you think pounds are going to go up or into gold or something like that. Um, but a lot of people just like the croissant, will put their dollars into cryptocurrency because they then want to buy something with it, like an NFT. Yeah, awesome. Love the, love the croissant. Uh, croissant analogy is the best. I always get people who DM me, go, now I want a croissant. <laughs> I'm hungry for pastries. Um, so you talked about how you got drawn into Web3, minted your first NFT. At what point did you say, I want to create my own collection of NFTs and then actually turn that into Meta Angels? It all happened very quickly. Um, I think, you know, I got my first NFT in November. Curious Addies, it's a great first project for anyone curious curious about them. Um, they are an educational sort of NFT platform with a phenomenal team, Ben and Meyer, the co-founders there. But I, it was actually another entrepreneur... It was actually another entrepreneur I knew, um, Allison Downey, who had known over a decade, who reached out and said, if you've ever been curious about this space, this is a great first project. I was like, well, I have kind of avoided this space. I'm aware of crypto and NFTs, but all the people I knew in it were the folks from Silicon Valley who are not my people. They were not inclusive. They were not the people I wanted to follow. I knew they were making boatloads of money in some cases or doing some really cool stuff, technically speaking, but it just wasn't attractive to me because the community wasn't my people or people I felt would welcome me. And so when this, you know, fellow mom of two who lives in Boulder, who I've known for a decade, said, hey, check out NFTs, I was like, well, that's surprising. I must be missing something. And I think the biggest thing for me that clicked, before all of this, I thought of NFTs as the buying a JPEG, which I think what most people think of. And if you're buying a single piece of art, 
that's often what you're doing. If it's what's called a one of one, it's a unique piece. Let's say like this piece here, if there's only one in the world, well, then you buy it and it belongs to you. And the, on the blockchain, it shows that it belongs to you. A lot of these projects like Curiosities or like Meta Angels are actually larger collections that are part of a community. I think that's what really clicked for me was, okay, wait, buying this piece of art is also my membership card into a community that has value, that has other things that come with it. That totally changed my perception of the space. I think, you know, I'm a member to a number of different organizations or some that I pay annual membership dues to. Here, for example, with Meta Angels, if you buy a Meta Angels, that's a lifetime membership card and you can use it. You can be a part of the community. You can sort of benefit from all of the things we do. And if you no longer get value or you can't, you know, you need the money or whatever reason, you don't want to be a part of it anymore, you can sell it. Like, can you imagine if you could resell, right? Instead of it being money down the drain, it's actually something you own. Now, will the value have gone up or down for any NFT? You cannot know for sure. The space is incredibly volatile. But that idea sort of just from a business perspective was so intriguing. Um, and then just the way in which community was being built in the space, I found so fascinating. So Allison pulled me into this first project, and then she was starting to explore this idea that sort of became Meta Angels and pulled me into a tiny little Discord to be an early member and give feedback. I was like very, very engaged in it. And so she, you know, set up a, a Zoom. And I remember on the call, she goes from cheerleader to founder, like, where do you want to be? And I was like, let's do it. And that was literally it. December 1st. And we minted, which means launched our collection on February 8th. So less than two months later, we had found the artist, created the art, built the community, written the smart contract, done the innovation. I mean, the whole thing. How many months? Two months and one week. <laughs> it's, that sounds intense. It's intense. Yeah, it was intense. And But it's, I, I mean, I love that, that early stage, that building, that intensity. Also, I love looking at a space and saying, this is how everything's been done. And here's the part of what, what they've done that I love. And here's the things that we could totally do differently. Like, how can there possibly be a norm? This space has been less than a year old in terms of real you know, maturing. It's so early. What can we do differently? Um, and so that was also a big part of the fun was taking just both innovation ideas, what we knew from Web 2, what we saw in Web 3, and sort of making our own piece of it. I think that was really important to us because... The reason we got so excited about it and the opportunity is that the space itself is so early and there is an opportunity to set more values-based communities, to set the tone, to decide, you know, we went for capital A art. We went for art that could be on your wall and no one would say, oh, that's an NFT. You see, that's beautiful art. And then you'd be surprised when they learned that it's an NFT, that you could see it in a museum or a gallery. Not, there's nothing wrong with all of the cartoons. There's plenty of cartoons out there. We wanted to do something different there. And we have the full spectrum of race and gender represented in our collection. Um, just beautiful art by Serana, who's our artist. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, just the whole process was really fun. But it's it's a, I know you're working on your, you're, what you're working on next is a lot of work to launch a collection. Um, but it's uh, only the beginning. Yeah. And so I think that that's something to emphasize as well, just that how early mm -hmm. we are in the space right now and how just unknown, right? The future future really is in terms of Web3 and even where NFTs are going in terms of how they're going to be regulated, you know, as securities or something else. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I, one of the things that we learned, so we took all of our business building knowledge of having built, you know, Allison is also an entrepreneur, been a serial entrepreneur for over a decade. She's really, really strong on the partnerships and brand and marketing side and building relationships and connecting people. Um, my background is really in the product engineering and operations piece. Gabe, our, our co-founder on the technical side, is also a serial entrepreneur, bought and sold companies, managed engineering teams. We took all this knowledge of building and then we had to just learn Web3, just, right? But, mm -hmm. And what we found is there's a lot of people in the space who had been in Web3 and sort of Web3 natives as much as you can be at these days, but who didn't know how to build businesses. And so we actually, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, we just launched Angel Labs, which is a Web3 accelerator inspired by Y Combinator and Techstars. Gabe and I both went through Y Combinator six months apart in 2012. Um, and Allison went through Techstars and looking at, you know, the best of the network, the best of the mentor piece that Techstars does programming and how do we help accelerate and mature the space by taking people who are really pushing innovation, not doing another bunch of 10K you know, PFP projects. There's plenty of them out there. But how do we think about how NFTs are being used to push the envelope on different use cases, on whether it's building community, 
nonprofits, gaming. I mean, there's a whole wide range of, of different possible applications. Um, we're seeing, you know, we've had over 100 applications in our first week, and they're just all over the board in terms of applications. But I think we'll look back at these days and say this was the like early, early, you know, just dabbling in the space in some ways. And that the ways in which the blockchain and NFTs impact consumers in the future, down the line, I think a lot of people won't even know that things are Web3 enabled in the way that you don't look at your phone when you take a picture and think about the fact that it uploads to the cloud. It just happens. You, do, you, know, you don't have to like click a button or do something. Or when you turn on your computer, you don't have to go to the command line and hit the buttons, right? Like it just happens. I think that's the direction that, that Web3 is going in and will have to go in for mass adoption. So tell us why we should check out Meta Angels. What's we we know about the unique lending part, but without getting in too much in the technical weeds, outside of the beautiful art, what else should people really know? Yeah, so Meta Angels really is a membership community. And so the reason we started it was that we had benefited so much from different communities in our own life, whether it's my McKinsey network, I went to Yale undergrad, I went through Wine Combinator, I have this network of female execs in New York. I can turn to those networks for almost any question I have, personal or professional, and it's helped me a huge amount in my life. But I didn't decide to be a part of those. Someone else selected me and those gatekeepers allowed me into those inner circles. And Web3 just gave us an opportunity to create a like-minded community of people who like to open the door for others, who want to help other people, and no one else is gatekeeping. And so we have the wishing well. People can come and ask any question they have. In some cases, it's artists who want to start a new collection. We've had people ask for introductions for jobs they're interested in. We've had folks ask personal recommendations. Um, parents ask help from other parents all over the board. And the community just is there to help. So you're building relationships, building connections. Um, we've got member-only programming and discounts like you'd imagine from that sort of membership um, events in person and, and virtual. But the core of it is that you're surrounded by really incredible people who are there to help and who want to help. And, and it's, it's just a really lovely corner of Web3 to be in. I mean, just like the internet, there's a lot of different corners you could choose. Um, I, I like to say, you know, ours is one of the more welcoming ones that you might find as an introductory uh, place to be. And then we have this pioneering lending technology, which allows us to let people in who might not be able to afford it, who just want to try it out, um, who might be new to Web3, don't know where to start. So it's metaangelsnft.com if people want to learn more about it, uh, meta underscore angels on Twitter. Um, but the reason to come is if you are also someone who believes that helping others is like a rising tide lifting all boats, feels good, you know that karma is, you know, what goes around comes around, um, and you want to be part of making Web3 more inclusive, more accessible, um, and you love some really gorgeous art, um, then yes, we're the right place for you. Amazing. So overall, we've heard about your career. You've been a you know, badass builder throughout <laughs> the entire, from management consulting to startups building the Muse to entering the Web3 space, now having launched Meta Angels. What would you say is one bad bitch tip you would give to women in their careers as you think about the thing that's really served you the most? I think what has served me the most is not letting other people define me. I think knowing your worth, knowing who you are, I mean, deep in your core that you are worthy and you are capable and that you don't need someone else to tell you that. I mean, it can feel good and validation and praise or whatever it, else, whatever it is, acceptance can be, can obviously feel great. But if when you really know deep down you are worth it, you don't put up with behavior that otherwise you might put up with. You speak up if you disagree. You know, I when I left McKinsey, for example, we didn't know if the Muse was going to work out. I mean, the vast majority of startups don't. Getting to, you know, go all the way through Series C, spend 10 years building. I mean, what an absolute, you know, journey we had. But going into it, knowing even if it fails, I will figure it out. Someone will hire me or I will start something else. Like that was part of what gave me the, the leap of faith to jump in. Same thing with Web3. You know, talking to Ali and saying, you know, someone's got to build something much more inclusive in the space and, you know, Fine, you know, there's clearly this like hole in the market and we're like, why not us? Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that self-confidence almost to know that you can do it, that you are worth it. Um, and knowing your strengths, right. This is not about inflating what you think you're good at. It's saying, I know that I'm good at this. This is what I bring to the table. I think when you come from like an inner confidence, um, it really just shifts your positioning in the space in any room that you're in, you are not seeking approval. 
I think a lot of women are conditioned to seek approval. Permission, approval, all good girl conditioning. They, absolutely. <laughs> and so really turning that off and not looking for someone else's approval of yourself. Um, I think that's the, the biggest tip. Yeah. I always say that learning how to trust yourself, which is very similar to my mm -hmm. journey where it was like, I took the leap from corporate finance mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship into web three. And it was every time when people ask like, how did you, how did you just take the leap with no network, yeah. like just no knowledge really. And I was like, I just, I learned early on to bet on myself. And I think every time I felt insecure, I didn't have that confidence. I would actually have to take a moment and look at my track record and was like, well, Every time I've really put my mind to it and I've worked my ass off, somehow it works. And so I need to stop doubting myself yeah. because that's just getting in the way of, of me. Yeah. And, and the thing is, even when you bet on yourself, you can fail, right? Like, and you can stumble um, for anyone who's, you know, listening and, and worried about that. It's not about always getting it right. It's, it's knowing that you will always figure it out. Get you will up. get back up and yet you... We'll find a safety net, right? And it's different for me now. I mean, I, my first business, I was in my mid twenties. I wasn't married. I had no kids. Worse, you know, the, the worst case scenario was okay. If things go really poorly, I can move in with a friend and sleep on a couch or go back to my parents and figure it out. Now starting a business, I'm the primary breadwinner. I have two kids. My husband works as well, but you know, it's a totally different calculus. And it's the same place of betting on myself and saying, I, I know I can figure it out, even though the stakes have gone up. My experience has grown with it. Yeah, amazing. And final question for you. What does it mean to you to be a bad bitch? I think being a bad bitch is about being unapologetic about who you are, whatever that means to you. I think that's the thing is by knowing yourself and being yourself, not apologizing for being yourself, it allows you to fill the space in the world that you are uniquely good at. And for some people that may be loud, some people that may be quiet, right? For some people, it may be in front of the camera. It may be very technical, whatever it may be. It doesn't mean that you have to go and be, um, maybe you don't self-identify as a bad bitch, right? Like that's that certainly for some folks that may be pushing it too far, but I think it's the idea of, I know who I am. I am unapologetic about it. And I, will live in that life, right? Like I will live a life that is true to what I'm good at, to who I am, to my values, certainly walking away from things that are not aligned with your values. Um, and it's not a, you know, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah. It certainly is. Um, but I think knowing yourself is a first step to that. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for all of the work that you've done. We're very grateful to have you in the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me at Lisa Carmen Wang, and make sure you check out thebadbitchempire.com for events, courses, crypto, and other cool shit. Thanks for tuning in to The Bad Bitch Empire. <laughs>